0: Nice and chilly this morning. I hope the cold will keep you a little extra awake during the sermon. I take from my text this morning the 23rd verse of the third chapter of Mark. And he called to them and spoke to them in parables How can Satan cast out Satan? Please pray with me. Oh, holy God, come and fill our hearts with your peace. Our hearts and souls at peace, open us up. Some word from you for our lives. Well, after our Easter celebrations with family and friends, after our long journey during Lent through the passion narrative of Jesus, we find ourselves back in Galilee not the Galilee of the post-resurrection world. In that Galilee, as I said last week, we meet the risen Christ in the midst of our daily living. Now we are going back to Galilee in the midst of the gospel, back into the story of Jesus' ministry, because it's there where we find tools to live in an uncertain world. Today we find ourselves with Jesus near the beginning of his ministry, If you recall, Jesus spends the first two chapters of Mark getting woke, as they say today. He hears John the Baptist calling out in the wilderness, and for some reason that day, that call leads him down to the River Jordan. John the Baptist strikes a chord in his heart. No more. This is the time. Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, a changed man, a man willing to embrace his calling. The injustices of society, he will stand no more. And he goes back to his home in Galilee, and there he preaches. He preaches about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. He begins a movement, a movement that challenges the status quo. So, after all this, what did Jesus think was going to happen? What did his followers think was going to happen? You can't just challenge the status quo, call out the powers that be, and not expect some kind of reaction. It's like the kid who takes a big swat at the wasp's nest just for fun, and he finds out that uh, there's an unwelcome reaction. Our passage opens with Jesus walking into his old home. Jesus could hear the crowds outside. seemed to follow him everywhere now. He loved talking to the crowds, healing people, but it was relentless and exhausting. Everywhere he turned, there was more need. He wanted a break, a respite from it all, but when he closed the door to his childhood home, he felt anything but relaxed. There's something about leaving home as an adult and returning. It's never quite the same. You remember the placement of objects, the familiar photos and knick-knacks, but somehow it's more distant, more alien. And that was before Jesus had to endure the nagging of his brothers. Why don't you just go along to get along? Why don't you just do what you're told like the rest of us? Why do you keep upsetting the apple cart? Don't you know what this is doing to your mother? Suddenly there's a knock on the door. Something about this knock made all the family pause. Neighbors don't knock like that. They use a quiet, tapping, polite, and upbeat. This was a hard, demanding banging. Mary went to the door and opened it. There before her stood several well-dressed men. They came into the house, leaving the door open so the crowd behind could hear what was going on. Everyone quietly stared at the strangers. A whisper went through the crowd outside. They're from Jerusalem. These are the important folks. The men looked around the house and laid their eyes on Jesus. The leader of the men spoke up authoritatively while raising his hands and pointing at Jesus. That man has beazable, in him. Words hung in the air. He exercises demons by the power of the leader of demons himself. Words created an immediate buzz in the crowd. Were they right? People began to think and mutter to one another. So that's how he does it. That's how he has the power to cast out demons. He's one of them just could feel the whole crowd begin to turn against him. It made sense. Where else could this man get this power from? He was an instrument of the devil. He sought to delude people with the devil's power, all to bring them from the side of God to the side of Satan. In spite of the tremor building around him, Jesus remained calm. He could see a smile begin to form at the corner of his mouth. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked, loudly enough so all could hear. The crowd quieted down, listening intently. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. The logic of Jesus' words began to seep into the recesses of people's brains, of course, the devil wouldn't allow the devil's own spirit to be cast out. And just like that, the crowd turned on the men from Jerusalem. Those well-dressed men looked at one another and realized they were in hostile territory. Without saying anything to their host, they glanced at one another and quickly made their way to the door, slipping through the crowd, avoiding its stares. But there would be more to come. They had planted the seed in people's minds that Jesus was of Satan. Some of them would get it and not forget. These men from Jerusalem just had to nurture it. It's long been a common strategy of those in power to undermine their opponents by painting them in the worst light. Latch on to a common and hated myth and then use it continually. Sooner or later, people might start to believe it. That was a strategy uh, that anti-union organizers used in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Their opponents, the the union organizers, were anarchists, not crusaders for good. They were committed to violence, to bringing down the state and everyone else with it. The union organizers weren't just fighting for fair wages or working conditions. They were determined to take down your house, your life, those anarchists. In the 1950s, Senator Joe McCarthy used the same strategy with painful effectiveness. Anyone with any liberal leanings was labeled a communist. Those words had such devastating resonance in the 1950s that an accusation alone was enough to ruin a career, a life. Moreover, the mere threat of an accusation kept liberal-leaning people from speaking out on a variety of issues. And today, today, most especially, we see the same strategy. Political opponents regularly use loaded language to paint their adversaries with phrases and words that have strong emotional kindling, dried kindling, waiting for a spark. People of Muslim descent, they're terrorists. Those who favor a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, those people are for open borders and crime-ridden streets. Those who want tolerance for diversity are called snowflakes. Those who want a more just society are dismissed as social justice warriors. Does that sound familiar? I saw a meme last night on a friend's Facebook page that claimed all Democrats were Nazis for wanting, wanting common-sense gun control. If only we could all be like Jesus and have that one line that totally unmasks our detractors. Wouldn't that be great? The one Facebook comment that actually works? <laughs> At least we can try. But this passage... This disagreement reflects something far deeper and in many ways far more important. It's not just about labels. The authorities who came to Galilee from from Jerusalem to confront Jesus were not just trying to undermine his authority with emotionally-laden name-calling. They were confronting a whole different perspective on the order of things and the structure of morality in first-century Palestine. The leaders in Jerusalem, you remember, were those who set the moral compass for society. They stood for the way things worked. It was was a whole moral system, an entire framework, focused on the Temple of Jerusalem and a method of interpreting the Torah. Jesus' ministry and his teachings questioned that. He challenged their basis of religious and moral authority. So where should that basis come from? Here in our society... How do we frame moral issues? How do we determine what's moral and what's not? So it was important in Jesus' time, it's important today. What is the ground? What's the there, there? When you're trying to discern what's, what's right, what's the right framework and what's not. Several years ago, I had the privilege of teaching at Groton School, an Episcopal boarding school in Massachusetts. One of my responsibilities was to teach an ethics course to seniors. Groton worked on a trimester system, and students in their final year could take an elective course for each of those trimesters, but one of their electives had to be a course on ethics. The course I taught, or the course I taught that had the most interest from seniors, was an ethics course on social justice. Not all that much of a surprise for me, but more than anything else, the course was an examination, a deep examination of moral reasoning what you do to form moral viewpoints in life. What are the bases that you use? What is the fundamental approach that you take in addressing moral questions? I opened the class by laying my own cards on the table. I'm a Christian and someone who's openly gay. Those things help shape my my moral perspective on issues. I didn't ask the students to agree with me in the class. In fact, I explicitly said I wanted to be challenged, but I wanted them to know where I was coming from. One of the authors we examined was Ayn Rand, the originator of a moral philosophy known as Objectivism. We read Rand because she differed 100% from me in my morality, and I wanted the students to engage with what drove their own moral compass. Ayn Rand grew up in Soviet Russia and emigrated to the United States in the 1930s. If there was one thing that Ayn Rand hated, it was Communism. She detested the elevation of the common good over the good of the individual. She believed firmly that communism sapped individuals of their own creativity, their own drive. It created a whole society of people who waited to be told what to do, and who, devoted and who devolved into moochers of those who actually did the work. Since the Soviet Union was a communist society, everyone shared equally in the efforts and ingenuity of just a few people. There were those few people who really did the work, And yet, they had to share the fruits of their labors with those moochers. There was no more ardent or passionate supporter of laissez-faire capitalism in the 20th century than Ayn Rand. Rand elaborated her views into a philosophy she called Objectivism. Objectivism, according to Rand, was rooted in natural law. Survival of the fittest should determine morality. Some people are naturally better than others. And society should allow for those people to achieve what they deserve. There is nothing worse than any barrier to accumulation. Self-interest is the highest good for objectivists. Everyone should embrace what Rand called, quote, the virtue of selfishness. Altruism, compassion for others, especially for the weak, was the worst value in a society. Altruism only fosters laziness and rewards the weak, the moochers. The accumulation of capital should be the goal, and Rand had a particular fetish for heavy industries, which I can only imagine came from her youth in Soviet Russia and its constant emphasis on five-year plans to boost industrial productivity. Rand's most famous works are her novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. The main figure in Atlas Shrugged, John Galt, has become a cult-like phenomenon among objectivists. Rand hated religion because it promotes compassion and altruism and does not glorify the survival of the fittest. It's all about selfishness, in her words, and getting more money. Rand thinks that anyone born disabled should be discarded. They are useless to society if they cannot produce goods. It is hard to overstate the influence that Ayn Rand has had on our society today. In every high school, especially in every white, middle, and upper class high school, there are those who read Atlas Shrugged and have become lifelong evangelists. Among her most ardent fans are Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, and Alan Greenspan. If you want to know why there is an all-out assault on every government social program by those in the political right, look no further than Ayn Rand. I guarantee they have all read her and have her on their shelf. Suffice to say, I am not a fan <laughs> of Ayn Rand. I detest Ayn Rand because she stands against what I believe in. And as a side note, she hated homosexuality and thought I should be heavily persecuted by law. <clears throat> but here's the point. Why is Ayn Rand wrong? Here you have two different systems. One, one Christian, the other objectivism. They both have philosophical underpinnings. They both construct a morality for society. How do you judge one and the values of one against the other? You have the Jerusalem establishment on one hand. You have Jesus and his message on the other. The Jerusalem elite can claim that Jesus gets his power from the devil and not from God, but how are you supposed to judge that? When people are taking away basic food stamps from children, how do you say that's wrong? This is exactly the argument that Mick Mulvaney, then Trump's budget director and now head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, made when he presented President Trump's budget in 2017. He defended cuts to Meals on Wheels, a program that helps feed seniors, and school lunch programs by arguing that it's not right to take taxes from certain citizens to give a handout to others. This is straight out of Ayn Rand. I I, I promise you that Mick Mulvaney is a fan. And what do you say to that? Mulvaney, by the way, was not criticizing the effectiveness of these programs. He was not criticizing their amount of waste or the legitimate need of people. He was challenging the whole concept of helping others through any kind of government program. And if Mulvaney is an objectivist, he opposes charitable work in all its forms. What are you supposed to say? A fan of Ayn Rand would say that Mulvaney is an instrument of God, or at least some manifestation of highest morality a Christian would, or I would say should, be appalled Uh, and then say that that talk is from the devil, that that, that hungry kids and seniors should go hungry. In the wealthiest country, that is, that the world's ever known. How do you judge between the two? Who is of Satan and who is of God? This dynamic, this same problem holds true with religion. How do you assess different approaches to Christianity? What are you supposed to say? A conservative Protestant would say that the central message of Christianity is that faith in Jesus leads to heaven. If you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, then you have your ticket to everlasting life. If you don't, then you are going to hell. Therefore, the most important thing is to convert people to faith in Jesus. You should contribute to mission work that brings people to Jesus. You should talk to others about Jesus. You should develop detailed apologetics or or arguments on the faith so that you can help lead people to Christ. Have you committed yourself to Christ becomes the most compassionate thing you can ask. And there's a lot in the Bible to support this viewpoint. A liberal Protestant would say, also relying on biblical passages and theology, that it's the will of God for everyone to go to heaven. The eternal fate of someone's soul is not dependent on the work that you do to convert others. The aim for Christians, therefore, is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We're called on to show compassion and love towards others more than anything else. A liberation theologian would go one step farther. A liberation Christian would say that the goal of Christians is to release people from oppression. You must fight against poverty and the systems in society that lead to poverty. You must oppose racism and racist structures in society. You should seek to liberate women from the oppression of a misogynist culture. You should embrace gays and lesbians and fight against homophobia because those systems oppress people. You should fight against the destruction of the environment because global warming and pollution disproportionately hurt the poor and marginalized. But how are you to say that one Christian viewpoint is right? wrong. How do you say that the elite in Jerusalem are wrong and that Jesus is right? This is the heart of the matter. You have to make a decision for yourself, where your morality stands. Thankfully, at least for me, this passage gives me some good insight. Jesus claims that his work, his ministry, his exorcisms cannot be from the devil because his actions are going against the devil. Can only take over Satan's kingdom when you bind him up first. Clearly, Jesus thought that his words and his actions, the things he was doing in Mark chapter one, two, and three, were binding the devil. What exactly was he doing? Healing the sick, cleansing lepers, causing the lame to walk, restoring a withered hand, sitting with the marginalized, challenging the purity codes of society that excluded people. Those are the things that Jesus meant by challenging the devil. That's because that's what he was doing. Jesus was not telling people to confess him as the Messiah in Mark chapters 1, 2, and 3. In fact, quite the contrary. He was downplaying his own status. What's more, Jesus' actions all had their roots within the book of Isaiah. He was ushering in the reign of God, the kingdom of God, that God God had promised to the people of Israel. Living into that kingdom, that was what God wanted. That's what Jesus was meaning in this passage. He said he wanted to oppose Satan and bind him up. Then Jesus finishes his interaction with the Jerusalem elites with one final devastating statement. He issues a blanket proclamation of forgiveness. People will be forgiven their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. Here was Jesus once again challenging the power of those in Jerusalem. Remember, in the eyes of the Jerusalem elites, the only way to forgive sins was through sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem, which they controlled. Here was Jesus extending that privilege, that ultimate privilege, outside their control. The kingdom of God was a kingdom of forgiveness. Then Jesus declares, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Mark the Evangelist then adds, to clarify the statement, Because they, that is the elite from Jerusalem, had said that Jesus has an unclean spirit. This line has befuddled interpreters for 2,000 years. What exactly was blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? It wasn't blaspheming against God. Jesus had just said that even that would be forgiven. It wasn't committing any number of sins in our daily lives. Those also could and would be forgiven. It was blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Blaspheming against the Spirit that was in Jesus. Blaspheming against that very Spirit that was a source of liberation to the oppressed and those who needed it. The Holy Spirit, rather than evil spirits, heals, both inside and out. It liberates us from guilt and shame. The Holy Spirit declares within our very selves that we are beloved children of God. Jesus can take it while people do all sorts of things to him. He can stand while they punish him and falsely accuse him and betray him and put him to death. Jesus can stand all of that, but blaspheming the the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love, the spirit of liberation, that Jesus has no time for. If you want to share in the kingdom, you have to understand that. It's no surprise, therefore, when people ask me what is the right form of Christianity, or what do I believe in, or what is my moral framework, that I know how to respond. I am firmly on the side of liberation theologians, because from all of my reading of the Bible, that is precisely where Jesus was, and I consider myself proudly to be a Christian. Now, the apostle Paul might have interpreted things in his own way, and there are many ways to read Paul. But Paul can can easily be read with a lens of liberation theology. But far more important for me is Jesus, the Jesus we find in the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of Mark, the earliest of the Gospels, and the one that's closest to the historical Jesus. When I run into those people who spout things about Ayn Rand, or viewpoints that she held, I have zero qualms saying that they're wrong. They're dead wrong. They have nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus was about liberation from oppression and not about lauding selfishness. Jesus stood stood with those on the margins and challenged unjust systems of power. Jesus was not of Satan because Satan would have nothing to do with healing and liberation. But Jesus did. It's easy for me to stand up and say that Jesus was on the side of LGBT people because he was steadfastly against oppression, not for some made-up sense of purity from a distorted reading of the New Testament. All throughout our lives, we are confronted with different morality systems, different ethical frameworks. Different people telling us that this is right or that is. How do you face those people from Jerusalem? Once you get beyond the labels and the unhelpful memes, how do you articulate what is of God and what is of Satan? The key is here in this passage, at least for me. Jesus' actions, his healings, his words that confront systems that oppress bind up Satan. What is of God? That which liberates from oppression. Particularly the oppression of those on the margins. What is of Satan, that which blasphemes the Holy Spirit, the spirit of liberation and wholeness? The world today needs to hear this. The world today needs to be able to discern what is right and what is not. The world needs a moral framework centered on God. More than anything else, the world needs people who have the courage to stand up and articulate it. The world needs you.